folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E-S, emil.gorgis at tokyorealty.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. Okay, so for today's episode, this is a recording of a super deep conversation with a new potential client who's in the market for both his own family home and an investment property. And I'd say this is a really concise breakdown of almost everything that goes into property investment in Japan specifically. We start off by speaking about due diligence. So what sort of things a buyer should be looking at when they're trying to evaluate properties for both purposes, to live in versus to invest in, and that's a little bit different. We drill down further into the kind of due diligence required for investment condo units, how to correlate the reserve funds total with the building's renovation history and the future renovation plans, uh, things to look out for when you're investing in older buildings, potential buyouts by developers, the advantages and disadvantages of purchasing tenanted versus vacant properties, and what it actually means to buy a tenanted property sight unseen in Japan without an internal inspection, because this is always the case here. We also talk about tenant profiles, the average tenancy length, uh, and also about our services and how we can help investors how to choose investment locations based on investment portfolio allocations and the risk appetite, how to minimize your tax liabilities, uh, what the purchase costs are for an investment property, how to calculate yields and profits, management fees, insurance coverage, tenant securities, guarantee companies and how they work, uh, how much to put aside for future innovations, maintenance vacancies, and also about resale strategies and whether it's possible to get your capital back if and when you sell. We also briefly touch on currency exchange, remitting money into and out of Japan and how to use foreign exchange companies for this purpose. So a real deep dive this time, uh, almost a mini webinar, if you will, touching almost every aspect of real estate property investment in Japan, at least as far as buying individual condo unit goes. So lay back, strap in, it's a pretty long ride, and I'll see you again on the other side. Okay, so go for it. So you're thinking about both buying a family home and also about investments you've mentioned, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, got, I, well, I've been working in Japan for about eight, eight years and now I'm sort of saving money here. 
Um, and I've been renting all that time. And I live in a nice area and, you know, I really, really like it. But then I was like, okay, well, maybe it's time to sort of invest some money. Um, also, I got to, I was in, I inherited some money. So I thought, okay, I could probably buy an apartment. So I started looking, trying to, you know, weigh up the sort of costs of locations and some are kind of a little bit low below my budget so that sort of left me a little bit left over so then I thought okay maybe I can invest it in in another property and I've been listening to your podcast for the last sort of three or four months so going back over the old ones and sort of getting a a general idea of the sort of the market etc so I thought I'd reach out to you and sort of uh chat chat in more detail about things and sort of get your your experience sure so the property that you're thinking to buy in tokyo is an apartment for your own personal use right yes yeah i think that was the uh just because i thought well i'm renting now um if i buy somewhere then that would uh you know i'd save save on rent and then uh you know, I'd have an asset, okay, if I get fairly central, then it should retain its value. Um, and if I decide to leave Japan um, or move somewhere else, then I could rent it out. That was the idea. So I'm sort and, of keeping it around the sort and of mentioned, area. You've mentioned money that you've saved and money that you've inherited. So you're not planning to buy it via mortgage financing? No, <laughs> I... Um, I've only been eight, eight years. Uh, my partner's not uh, Japanese, so I can't go down that route. Um, what sort of visa are you on? Uh, it's a humanity. Is it humanity? Yeah, humanities. Okay, well, that I work in universities. That, is that renewable every few years, or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's you, pretty. Are busy. you on the track to permanency? Well, I don't know what the the. I mean, I assume. I looked at the, they got the scoring system and I'm not quite young enough. My Japanese is okay, but not quite high enough. I don't quite earn enough. I'm not in the right sort of career. So all my points, yeah, it's just, you know, I'm never going to reach the 20 points that I need to get that. I think after after 10 years of residency, it's pretty much not, not guaranteed, but pretty much a, a smooth sailing to get it regardless of points, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, 10, but I've only been eight years. Yep. Okay. So no, just thinking because if you would if you would have waited, and even on the humanities visa, I think some of the banks that are more foreigner friendly, like Prestia, for example, um, even on that visa, they might consider you for a loan. It's just a shame not to get because it's it's pretty much free money with the interest rates they're charging here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I looked. I I rang Prestia, and then they said, um, I think my basic wage is like. A shade under five million. I mean, I do overtime and other jobs. So, yeah. and, but they were like, "Oh no, it doesn't count." And I was like, "Well, well I'm going to do, will it?" Okay. No, and I even said that I'm paying like you know I could pay fifty, you know, fifty percent or sixty percent deposit if need be, and they were like, "No, no, it doesn't count." So okay, that's a shame. All right, so that yeah, yeah, on I mean that I, track. Okay. Yeah, I mean I, I think there's another one that. Like, um, there's Prestia and what, what, what's your, there's another one, Shinsen. Shinsei, yeah, Shinsei is also pretty foreigner friendly. Yeah, and I thought, um, and I, but I, th- I think I would, they were looking for like, there's always a sort of, 
you know, partner, Japanese, um, yeah. that sort of caveat seems to be in there. And I, I was even thinking, I've been with like Mitsubishi Bank for like eight years, you know, being a good customer. I thought, well, maybe even I could go and speak to them. Um, but I need to do it in Japanese. So I was just trying to pluck up the the Japanese skills to do that. Um, okay. And you don't have a, a friend or a colleague who could come in with you and... Um... I could do. I mean, that, that's uh, my, my Japanese, my, my teacher could come in with me. Uh, but they're just worth pursuing. But uh, okay, so let, let's put that aside for now. Yeah. Um, so with the central Tokyo property, um, as you've mentioned, you've been in touch with one real estate agency and they've been, um, have they been showing you any potential properties or are you just initial discussions or what have you done with them? Yeah, I've seen a couple of properties. Uh, I mean, I think the, it's the, it's, the, it's the Tokyo real estate is that obviously because I want fairly central and my budget is limited to 30 million. Yeah. It's properties that are 1960s, early 70s. Uh, they're all nice inside, you know, um, new. But there's always, you know, something, you know, to be in that bracket. You know, even they're a bit old and people have been warning me off because of the earthquake. Yeah, 60s, 60s, it's not just the earthquake standard. 60s, 70s means that um, sooner rather than later, a developer is just going to swoop in and try to buy it uh, and redevelop it under the owners. Uh, yeah, so you might Actually, not be holding one, it for that long. I think if it's that old. Well, one one property I saw that well, that was the selling point that they were pushing down was say, look, you could live in it for a couple of years, and they showed me the plans for rebuilding um, the 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 apartment. Sending um, yeah. which was you know great location, um, uh, but I think they said that uh, it was like six or seven or maybe ten years off was the was the was the plan and they still hadn't agreed amongst the uh, the the owners of the apartment but then you'd be getting a new a new property when they build a new one right yeah and they said that basically the land in which the property's on is a little bit bigger so actually they, they were going to add two apartments to it so there was a potential that you'd you know make money on it but you know that was one of the first i saw and i thought well and the other problem was it didn't have a management company running the building. It was just, oh, self-managed, is it? Yeah, it was just Yoji San in the in the building. Doing yeah, right. that can be a bit of a headache. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was. People were just like, mm. you want you want professionals who know what they're doing to actually take care yeah. of renovations and repairs, and they also can help owners reach decisions a lot quicker. If it's self-managed, there's always a lot of bickering and arguing. Yeah. Yes, that was one another. That, and then there was an, another one I saw was again really central location, and the buildings looked good, and obviously they've been cared for. But there was no reserve fund. You know, they said they done any big renovations in the last ten years. I think they had, but they just said, "Oh, there, there's no, there's no reserve fund." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So, but, but, but that, that's not necessarily a red flag. So what we normally like to see is. Um, if the reserve fund is depleted, we want to make sure that in the last 10 years, the big ticket items were done. So the exterior, the roof, um, maybe the elevators, if you're lucky. And if that's been done in the last 10 years, then it does make sense that the reserve fund is depleted, but there's not going to be any huge expenses um, in the immediate range of time post-purchase. Um, but no one was depleted and nothing was done in the last 10 years, that's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, I think the... the, the, the there was no reserve fund because no one was paying any any money for it. 
Okay, so they weren't collecting very well, were they? No, they weren't collecting at all. Okay. This was part of the. I think they said that. Um, what was it uh, that I said? Oh, so there's any repairs need doing? Oh, they just charge a one off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, so I could get hit. I mean, there was no elevator in the building. There's only like four floors, five floors. So that that and it looked, you know, looked like they they kept it well. Um, but I was like, oh, you know, these are all, you know, and I'm quite happy to go through the process and just learn. Okay, no, no, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that. And um, you know, if it takes me a few months or whatever, I find. But in the process, I'll learn about the market and I'll. I'll understand, you know, when I see the right property, it'd be like, yeah, boom, okay, I know what's out there, I know the prices, I know what's there. Well, you that's seem to be ticking all the right boxes in your due diligence, so that that's a good sign. You're learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I don't want to, you know, I, I, like uh, it was my uh, my my granddad's money. My you know, my granddad worked for like uh, you know seventy years of his life, a builder, and that saved all his money. And I think, oh. Couldn't just spend it that easy. I've got to, I've got to invest it in something uh, that uh, you know is, is has adds value to my life. And you know, old school was he just save under the mattress kind of my. Dad oh yeah, well, that was the thing. Yeah, <laughs> but I think in the days you used to get like because he, he, I remember used to speaking to him sort of the last few years of his life, and he was moaning about the interest rates going down. And before, when he was saving, it was five, six, seven percent. So you know, he was happy with that. And then, it was a bit, a bit easier to save when uh, the cost of living was a little bit lower in the past decades, right? It's not as easy. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So I think he, you know. Okay, well, so so for your Tokyo Tokyo home, um, obviously that's something that you want to be, um, you know, visiting a lot of properties in person and and uh, looking at the exterior and the interior because that's where you're going to be living. So for that purpose, I think the best thing for me to do would be. To put you in touch, maybe with a couple more real estate companies in Tokyo that are um, yes. quite, quite foreigner friendly, and they got English speakers on staff, and they can help. So similar to the one you've been working with. Yeah. So when we're done, I'll send uh, a couple of introductory emails to put you in touch with Tokyo agents. And um, with the investment property, so what's assuming that you're purchasing the Tokyo property in cash? What sort of budget would you have left over for investment? Uh, well, I'm, I'm seeing one today, and it's like 24 million. Um, I think it's 1982. So I was trying to push the real estate uh, agent on, you know, whether it was sort of the the side of the, you know, whether it had the new earthquake standards. Um, 82 would have the new. Uh, if if building was if the building plan was um, was approved by June 1981. Uh, that would be up to the latest earthquake. Oh, you might be borderline there, depending on how long it took them to build it. Yeah, I think it's just suspiciously low price for it's like Megaro Shibuya border. Yeah. So Shinsen, which is like quite a quite a um, desres area. Well, that, that might not only be because of the earthquake resistance standards. It might also be because they've been. Um, Umming and arring about a new legislation that's supposedly going to, uh, it was originally supposed to come in next year, but now they're sort of saying that they're thinking about when it's going to come in, but sooner or later it will happen. And what that's going to do is um, it's going to put more of an onus on uh, owner unions to better maintain the buildings via some uh, uh, government uh, standards that they're going to uh, detail and lay out. Uh, and then what's going to happen, that, that's going to apply for buildings that are 40 years and older. 
And what's probably we're assuming is going to happen, there's going to be a compliance system and a certificate for buildings that either um, live up to the standard or don't. So what it's going to do is um, either the owner unions will be scrambling to catch up on the stuff that they haven't done, you know, too properly so far, which means that they'll have to jack up building fees to to cover for that. Um, Or they might choose not to comply, not to get the certificate, in which case there's suddenly going to be a market of certified and non-certified properties and the price will probably reflect that. So what we've been seeing in the last couple of years is um, properties that are getting to the 35, 36, 37 uh, age mark are suddenly being discounted uh, quite significantly. So we've, for investment at least, we've been advising to our customers until that legislation becomes a bit clearer, we've been advising them to maybe stick to properties that are 30 years and older. So what's the date on that, like 1990s? Uh, yeah, 1991 or two at the moment, but that's for investment purposes. I mean, if you're talking about owner-occupied properties, you're paying a certain you know, monthly amount for building fees. So as long as you are comfortable with it, potentially, I don't know, like worst case being doubled, let's say, as long as you're comfortable paying whatever that's gonna, be end up, uh, that's gonna end up being, if it's doubled, it shouldn't make such a huge difference. I mean, 82 for an owner occupier is not necessarily a horrible scenario to be in. For investment property, if building fees are doubled, it, it can pretty much reduce your yield by two or 3%. And that's, that's a lot less uh, attractive of a proposition, and it will also reduce this resale price. But for owner-occupied properties, not necessarily such a huge deal. Right. Okay, so the new law basically sort of forced um, older buildings to comply to that, like what you said, which means they have to uh, put in new... A new standard, yes. Uh, It's not not exactly a law, like they're not going to force them to do it, but they will need to do it if they want to be certified as a a well-managed, compliant building kind of thing. All right, okay. Like a new certificate system, they're not going to force them to get it, but if they don't get it, that's obviously going to affect the price, I I would assume. So the the well-managed is what, in what sense, related to safety and things like that of the the, the building? Regular, first of all, they want to see regular um, owner union meetings because a lot of them haven't Uh, been doing that. They might have appointed somebody who's died and they've never replaced him, that sort of thing. And what results from that is that there's not really building inspections being conducted on a regular basis. Some of them become an eyesore. Some of them are just outright dangerous because they're not being maintained. Right. And so whatever the standard, whatever the standard is that they're going to be putting out, I'm guessing it's going to be a bit more strict than what most, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the owner unions have been doing so far. Um, Some of them, like if you look at the renovation history and the inspection, uh, you know, the periodic inspections and the uh, renovation plans, if there's a clear renovation plan in place for the next, say, five years, and there's a clear renovation history for the last five or 10 years, then that building is probably already being well managed. Um, But some of them just don't have that, right? Some of them are saying, oh, we don't have any immediate plans for renovation. And then you look at the past and you see that they haven't done the exterior for the last 10 or 15 years. And then, you, well, hang on, why don't you have a renovation plan in place? Because obviously every 15 years at most, some, some of those, the roof, the exterior, some of these items need to be done. The elevators need to be done every 20, 25 years if there is an elevator. Um, so either the last 10 years or the next 
predicted five years, there should be something that says there's going to be a big renovation happening or has happened. And if that's not clearly um, defined in documents from the owner union, then that that is probably what the government wants to address. So these types of buildings that are not doing it um, properly or regularly enough. So what red flags do I need to look for? Just look for the renovation history. 10 years renovation history. Um, you want to see that the exterior and the roof at least um, have been done in the last 10 years. And if they haven't been done, if one of them hasn't been done, you want to see that, um, like if you take the total amount in the reserve fund pool and then you divide it by the number of units in the building, that gives you a certain amount per unit. So you want to see that, uh, I'd say, depending on how many big renovations were done in the last 10 years, if nothing was done, you want to see maybe a third of the value of each unit um, covered by the reserve funds. Um, if one of the big ticket items was done, maybe half of that, so let's say 15, 18% covered. Uh, and if it's not, then they're probably going to be jacking up building fees or they're going to be taking out a loan when they need to do that. Right. In which case, um, well, if they take out a loan, they would also be jacking up the building fees. Or if they've got collection issues, they might just, uh, like the self-managed ones, they might just ask each owner to pay out, say, suddenly a million or a million and a half yen. Um, which, again, it might not be a disaster from your perspective as an owner-occupier. So maybe you can put up with that expense or you can put up with double the building fees, but just something to take into account. If it's an investment property and it's suffering from the same sort of lack of reserve funds and lack of recent renovations, then you want to factor in that, I mean, again, run the Excel sheet. I'll send you a sample of how to do that and then double the building fees and see if the return is still going to be attractive or not. Right. Okay. Uh, so to look at the reserve fund and and the renovation history. So if the ten of, years, and then also look they, if they have a renovation plan for say the next five years. Okay. I mean, some of them will be aware that they haven't done big renovations in the last ten years, and therefore they will put a plan in place. So that means that the building is being well managed from a renovation and repair perspective, but it's still a matter of whether they have enough funds or if they're going to have to jack up the fees for that. Right. So if, if nothing big has been done, then you're saying they need a third of the value for each unit. That's quite um, If nothing big has been done in the last 10 years, then, I mean, from our experience, um, let's assume a worst case scenario, like a big earthquake hits and the building gets completely total lost. Um, in that case, they're going to use the reserve fund to clear out the rubble uh, and then they're going to divide it between the owners, whatever's left. So there's going to be some compensation there. Your insurance policy will cover you up to, say, 50 or 60 percent of the value. Um, so the remainder, we'd like to see 30 uh, percent for big major work that might need to get done. Is that typical? Do you find that? We haven't had a case where anything like that happened, but uh, thinking about how much they're going to be spending, uh, depending on the size of the buildings, the more units there are, obviously, the more renovations cost. Mm. Um, so it's just a benchmark figure for us. We like to see at least that much covered. Like if nothing was done in the last 10 years, but the reserve fund pool uh, divided between all the units does cover about 30% of the value of the properties. And then we're feeling relatively comfortable that they will have enough funds to do the re renovation when it's needed. 
And even if they do jack up building fees, it's not going to be a huge amount. They might, you know, go up from 5,000 to 7,000 or something of that sort. Um, but yeah, if it's less than that, not necessarily a, a deal breaker, but maybe try to cover yourself by negotiating the price down a little bit. Uh, okay. Uh, Renders units. Okay, so that's yeah. Mm, interesting. Okay. Uh, bu 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 bu. Was there anything else? I've got, I've, got a lot, I've got a lot of questions here. No, no, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, um, so who, I'm just trying to think about. Uh, you know, I've been obviously a lot of uh, foreign investors are coming in. So, who, who are typically selling these properties? The the around Japan or in. Because they're obviously not new builds or old builds. Who, who's typically sort of selling them on? Um, most companies or? Yeah, Japanese. So we've been mainly purchasing um, from elderly Japanese folks. Ah, okay. Who are either restructuring their portfolio or they're reaching the point where they're asking their kids if they want their properties inherited when they pass away. And most of the kids are just not really aware of the value of that. So they just say, sell them and give us cash instead. And the other, I'd say 30, 40%, so 60% would be those, and 30, 40% are just real estate companies or um, investment uh, companies that do this for a living. So they buy properties, they buy and hold them, or they buy and renovate and flip them and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, younger generation sellers, not so many. Foreigner sellers, occasionally we get a foreign seller, but not, not that many of them. Yeah, because a few of the ones I've been seeing this seem to be owned by companies that own yep. these old properties, do them up, and then, like you say, flip them. Yep. Um, it's not a bad uh, thing, as long as the return is still attractive, why not? Okay, yeah, so it doesn't... Um, and then, so typically, so you say wouldn't touch things before 81, they'll sort of make sure they've got the... Um, although you said 92 now, you're because of the... Well, for, for investment properties, for if you're yeah. talking about a property for yourself to live in, then maybe yeah, as long as it's past the 81 building standard, it's probably okay. But still, I mean, the fact that a developer might come in and buy the building is not always, I mean, some of them try to sell that as an attractive point. It's not always that attractive because um, obviously they're going to be trying to pay as little as possible. And if the building is large, it's not going to be worth their while to um, compensate each and every unit owner at a relatively high amount. So they got all sort of um, gray area, semi-dodgy tactics. Like they might buy two or three or four units at a reasonable price so they can get an, a vote on the owner union. And then they got three or four votes and they try to influence uh, whoever's heading the union sometimes kind of uh, uh, not outright bribe, but just being really nice to him and giving him presents and that sort of thing. So that the owner union, then the owner, the head of the owner union then tries to pressure uh, unit owners to agree to the sell plan. Um, and they do that by telling them that uh, the building's really old and pretty much, um, pretty much done with its lifespan. And very soon you're going to be looking at a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of expenses and you just want to sell it as, as fast as you can for whatever. And, they don't necessarily offer you good value for it. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not outright illegal, but they're, they're not really, not all of them are very fair to, uh, and, and 
most of the people who own units in these buildings are not very savvy, especially owners, occupiers. They're not investors. They haven't bought a bunch of units or, or a bunch of properties in their lifetimes. So they're sort of easily influenceable by these sort of tactics. And once they get an 80% agreement, they just sell it at whatever price they agreed on. So if possible, I would stick to 90, at least 1985 and, and younger if you can, just to give you, you know, 10 years or what before this starts happening, right? Right. So the, so the average age of, because I was trying to research that, you know, the average, because it's, Obviously, post-war Japan made lots built lots of houses, and the quality wasn't so good. So there was I didn't know whether it was to do with that. That's okay. They don't last so long because you know the post-war building was were not that great, or that was the typical standard. Well, uh, that's houses though. That's wooden structures. You're talking about reinforced ah, concrete. Yeah. Ah, so it's a wooden. The okay. reinforced concrete blocks are built very well. They're built to withstand right. earthquakes, even before the 1981. Um, even if they were built before that, there's a lot of stuff that they can do to further strengthen it. Um, not quite bring it up to post 1981 standards, but still, they're quite quite reliable and strong. I mean, with the amount of earthquakes that Japan takes every year, you would expect it to be a total disaster if they weren't built. I mean, it would be rubble all over the place, and that's not really the case. So. Yeah, it's not a huge uh, disaster if it's built pre 1981. We're more considering it because of the um, potential to be bought out cheaply at a later stage. You wouldn't have any. So just someone would just come in and say, "We want your building," and sort of, and then you because the of process. The... It takes them a few years, but they've got time on their hands. If it's a prime prime location in Tokyo, they're very happy to put in the four or five years that it'll take them to convince enough people to sell. <laughs> okay. And then that that wouldn't be good for the owner. They wouldn't sort of like, okay, well, I can, I can get a um, a good return on this. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. If the building again is well managed and the owner union and there's a you know a good strong building management company in place, then they would be acting on the best interest of the uh, unit owners. Um, but sometimes that's not the case. So basically. The smaller the building is and the larger the land parcel is, the more attractive it is to developers, in which case they'll probably offer a fair price or a new property when it's being rebuilt. But if you're looking at, uh, for example, those big concrete monsters that are, say, 100 units or 200 units, and they're pretty much filling up the space that they're allowed to fill um, the building ratio on the land parcel, um, that's when developers will try to get as much value for their money as they can, because compensating, you know, a hundred unit owners at a relatively high price and then building a building that's not going to be much larger than the original, there's not much profit in it for them unless they can push the price down. Right. Okay. That wouldn't be a tactic to pursue buying something to slightly older and I wouldn't bank on it unless again it's a small building that's relatively easy on a, a relatively large land land parcel right yeah like it, basically if a developer can build something bigger on that same land parcel once they demolish the old building and that might be a good strategy to pursue but if it's going to be something similar to what's already on there then I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on that being profitable yeah okay yeah, because the, uh, the sort of real estate agent was pushing that as a strategy, saying, I'll do this, do that. Uh, I was kind of, okay, but, um, you know, I was still thinking about it. And It depends on the developer, too. Like, if they've already got a particular developer in mind and they've already been discussing a, a, sell, a sale plan, then they might have a price in mind as well. So it's something that you can actually review and look at. 
Um, but otherwise, if it's an unknown, it depends on you know who who's going to be making the offers and you know whether they're nice guys or not, really. Okay, second. Point is, it's not going to be. Um, I mean, you get a vote, but it's not going to be your decision to make. You you're not going to be able to reject an offer. I mean, you you can potentially refuse to sell, but then you'll be stuck. You know, as the sole, you and a few other stubborn people will have units in the building and the, you know, the, the new owner wants to demolish it and they'll slowly start making life more difficult for you. They might decide to stop water supply or gas supply. Or, I mean, oh they'd be within their rights to do it. I mean, you, you control the, the space inside the interior of your unit, but they're under no obligation. If they own the common areas of the building, then they can pretty much do whatever they want with the infrastructure, right? Oh, crikey. Okay, <laughs> sounds yeah. okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not maybe I mean, it's not... not not to scare you off, but I'm just saying, don't bank on it as a strategy that you might get bought out at a profit. That's it might yeah. happen, but it's not something to bank on. Yeah, no, it was only just because that that the, the particular real estate was pushing that as the, the strategy to buy that place. So maybe because they were getting desperate to sell it, or but maybe there's of... a plan already in place. Maybe yeah, there was. Yeah, know they... who's going to be buying it and for how much. So in that case, it is a strategy. Yeah, I think they, they had, but the, I think it was the, um, what was it? They showed me all the plans and that, and they talked about the, 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 the land being bigger, and they were going to add two units. But I think the, they, they negotiated with the, um, the people living in the apartment, but I think only... Only a couple had agreed. I think it was about 15 in, who lived in the apartments. And the rest were just like, oh, we'll wait and see kind of thing. So yep. they would sort of say, it's going to maybe 10 years down the line when the building gets so old. Well, look, if there is a buyer already lined up who said that they will compensate all unit owners with a new property in the new building, that is a plan. But like you said, whether everybody will agree or they're just going to be waiting, waiting and then whether that particular buyer will still be interested by the time everybody agrees is just anyone's guess isn't it yeah okay yeah i thought it better to i mean it was, you know, it was one of the first places i saw so i thought um there's no point jumping in straight away yeah uh, okay so i got one with the other i was trying to go for like pre-buying and i've got my questions so have you talked about um like uh, yesterday or well, i listened to it yesterday but it was a couple of days ago the um that when you're buying a place if it's tenanted you can't access the build you can't access to look at what it's like yeah correct yeah so how does that you know so if i'm buying an apartment and you know it's even if it's 1990 someone's been living in there 10 years obviously does that affect the value i mean is that that uh is that sort uh, of risk? not necessarily it's a mess there's a pro and a con to that, right? So on the other hand, on the one hand, you're getting a stable tenant who's been there for a long time and is, you know, in all likelihood going to stay another at least five or 10 years. Um, the downside to that is that, you know, if and when they do move out or if they're elderly and if they, you know, check into a nursing home or pass away, then after a 10, 15, 20 year tenancy, you're going to be looking at a very substantial renovation bill, um, which is, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, Aside from the fact that they're cash cows, people also prefer the smaller units because you know there's a there's a cap on how much they're going to have to spend to renovate a one bedroom or a one LDK unit, right? 
Yeah. Um, whereas if it's a family-sized property and you've had a family in there for 20 years, then, you know, whatever the renovation bill would have been for a studio, multiply that by two or three times. Yeah. Just because of the size of the uh, property. Um, so by limiting yourself to smaller, um, smaller layout units, you're minimizing the uh, renovation cost. Um, and you can sort of assume by the length of the tenancy and the character, the profile of the tenant, you can sort of assume what the renovation cost would be, right? Uh. So, um, you know, women, especially middle-aged women, uh, tend to take better care of a property than, um, sorry to say, dirty old G-sons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so depending on who the tenant is and how long they've been living there, you can sort of roughly estimate what's going to be the cost if and when they move out. And you can try to use that as a negotiation technique to, to slightly reduce your offer price. Um, but to a point, I mean, depending on the location and, you know, what the yield of the property is at the moment, the seller will probably know how much they can get for it. So there's no really, I mean, lowballing is not really done much in Japan, maybe 10%, 15% off if it's, you know, something extreme, but not more than that. Okay. Right. And then, okay, so that's factored in. So then you talked about doing due diligence. So who, who does that? So, I mean, I've got, a, I printed a list from, from the internet and I, I just sort of go through, oh, reserve funds, this, with my, so when, when if, I'm, if I'm buying through you, you just, put us in touch with an uh, estate agent and then we talk to them or? Um, or? That's totally up to you. So some customers uh, engage us on a consultation basis, which means that, you know, you're going to be sending potential properties to us and we'll give you our um, opinion about them. We'll, you know, direct you what questions to ask um, and um, what sort of things to watch out for and what would be a reasonable price to offer and so forth. Um, others hire us for complete facilitation. So, I mean, either you do the research and provide us with potential or we do do it on your behalf. And then we'll be the ones contacting the agents on your behalf, doing the due diligence, letting you know what we think of everything and facilitating the purchase itself. So you've mentioned that your Japanese skills are um, still not maybe completely up there. Yeah, like N3 intermediate level. Okay, so you're not going to be able, in any case, you unless you're dealing with... Um, uh, an agent that specializes in catering to foreigners, in which case they'll provide you with um, legal documents to sign in English. Um, but that's a pretty limited market to deal with. And it's a lot more um, feasible in Tokyo and central Osaka, maybe. If you're looking at properties elsewhere, there's not always going to be an agent who's going to be able to do that. And also working with a single agent just limits your access to the market, right? Because... Um, Listing agents don't like to share their commissions with buyer side agents. Um, so the, one of the advantages of working for us is that we're not a realtor, we're not an agency. So when we contact a listing agent, we immediately let them know that um, A, they don't need to share their commissions with us because the buyer is paying us separately and it's nothing to do with that. And B, um, they'll never have to speak to a scary foreigner or provide any English documentation because everything will be done through us, uh, a Japanese company, Japanese reps and so forth. So that just opens the market up a little bit. So aside from the, uh, so the due diligence and the consultation and, you know, helping you out through the process, we can do a, either on an hourly basis or a full facilitation. We'll do that either way. Uh, but with the full facilitation, we'll also be the ones in touch with the agents. We'll be signing all the documentation on your behalf. And so it just opens up more access to the market. That's all. 
Yeah. Okay. When, when uh, you're talking about investment properties, which area did, was were you also thinking about Tokyo, or were you um, going? Well, <laughs> well, I assume that uh, you know if I've got so, for example, if I get one for twenty four, uh, then it sort of leaves me like five million or something like that. But that's left. not going to be Tokyo anyway, is it? Yeah, yeah. So that's <laughs> well. Yeah. I mean, you could do, but it would be wouldn't be a very uh, uh, decent investment. Yeah, uh, you would you would be able for five million. You could potentially maybe get something in uh, Yokohama or Saitama, maybe Kawasaki if we're lucky. If you want to stay close to Tokyo, right? Otherwise, uh, Nagoya, Kobe, even Fukuoka City still has some five million or less uh, properties. I think. And it would definitely buy you properties in um, smaller prefectural capital satellite cities and so forth, where return could potentially be higher, but you'd have less potential growth, uh, more likely to lose value if the economy goes south. We interrupt this broadcast, I always wanted to say this, we interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens. And they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that was the second question. How do you decide on the location then? Because you, I, in your presentation, you talked about this sort of Fukuoka, Yokohama, yep. Kobe. And then prefectural, you sort of had a, I mean, like, maybe like a ranking, wasn't it? Almost, it no, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't. It was just oh, right, no okay. particular order. I just ah. I just listed attractive locations there. Um, okay, so it wasn't we, like... we basically look for, like I mentioned in the presentation in the conference, we basically look for stable population figures. Yeah. They don't have to be growing, but they shouldn't be declining too fast. 
and we look at um, industries and employers, like just to make sure that we've got a sufficient tenant base at any given point in time. So blue collar is maybe okay, but we don't want to have a single employer. You know, if they pack up and move to another city, then everybody needs to, you know, the, the town, like a mining town, it just clears up. Yeah. So we want to see at least two or three industries and, and quite a few um, big employers or maybe a bunch of small employers, but anyway, not, not a one trick pony kind of town. Um, and then how do how that how do how do investors usually decide what's the based on the yield or they have they have you know you push them in certain yeah so beyond that it depends on the investor if this is in your case for example because this is going to be are you I forgot to ask by the way are you invested overseas in anything else do you have any sort of um, stock portfolio or other real estate or anything like that uh, I mean I've just I've got my pension in the UK and then. Uh, ETF Vanguard ETF. Okay. Uh, yeah, so a bit of a bit of stocks, so sort of yeah. Um, okay. And is this this um, let's say this five million yen is that going to be in in relation to the rest of your portfolio? Is that like half of it, thirty percent of it, more than half of it? What what is it going to be? I'm just trying to add, <laughs> just trying to give oh, you yeah. a recommendation on the risk risk profile. That's all. Yeah, I mean, not that. Uh, I, I haven't, because I, I originally had a pension fund, but it wasn't. I was paying too many, too much fees on it, so I pulled out of that and then stuck the money into a, a low, low, um, low fee sort of Vanguard Global ETF. Yeah, uh, and I've got maybe only about fifty thousand dollars in that. Um, okay. I only started last year, and then UK pension fund. I mean, that's just. I mean, that's pretty. A thousand a month goes into that. Um, so half, roughly, the the property yeah, investment, I suppose. And then, and then I've got like three hundred thousand US in cash, which you know. But that's six, that's not for investment. That you're going to use that for your home, right? Yeah, part yeah. of well, probably most of it, and then um, and then whatever's left over, I'll put into um, um, a, a smaller property if possible. Okay, so let, let's call it approximately half of your investment portfolio in this case. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this case, I would probably recommend to be a bit more safe and stable, not put, not go too adventurous, uh, chasing high yields if it's going to be half of your assets, or half of your investment assets, obviously not the place that you're going to be living in, but half of your investment and maybe keep it a bit more safe and stable. So I would probably advocate for um, Kobe... Fukuoka, uh, maybe suburban Osaka, if we can find something at that price, um, or central or at least semi-central Yokohama, because Yokohama tends to be very suburban once you get away from the port area. Um, so try to stay maybe within three, four stations from that area, if it's Yokohama. Um, definitely Kawasaki. I wouldn't go for satellite cities, prefectural capitals, and so forth, if that's going to be half of your investment portfolio. And I'm also going to try and avoid anywhere that's too blue collar in character. Um, just because, I mean, it's Japan, there's not going to be crime in ghettos, but still you might have occasional payment issues. Like if you're buying in Nagoya, for example, uh, we've experienced more tenant and payment issues there than in other places just due to the nature of the uh, of the city. So, yeah, I'd probably direct you towards Fukuoka, Kobe, Yokohama, 
Saitama maybe. Saitama's pretty good as well. Right, just because they're sort of um, popular kind of places and relatively stable. Yes, uh, so the population there is not in decline. They're close enough to a big city. Fukuoka is a big city, but the rest of them are close enough to a big city um, to enjoy those dynamics. And also, um, like, for example, I could recommend Sapporo, which is also relatively a white-collar city, and it's one of Japan's biggest cities, and the population is not in decline. But there you've got winter issues, right? So... Um, when it snows, people don't move around much. So if you happen to get a vacancy close to winter, it could be a pretty long one. Um, there's a lot more heating equipment. So maintenance is slightly higher. Um, so again, it's, it's a good city to invest in, as are the satellite cities and the prefectural capitals, but maybe not for your first investment if it's going to be half of your assets. Right. So you just want something that maybe slightly lower. Uh, lower yield. the yield, but safer and stable, yeah. Will be easier right. for us to populate the uh, property in this pro- in the in those cities when it becomes vacant. So, so five million. So, how much would I invest five million in the property, and then what's the sort of fees on top of that, and then what's the the yield? So, in those cities, the yield would probably not be beyond six and a half, maybe seven percent uh, net before tax, if we're lucky. So that's that, the net pre-tax. So depending on, I don't, I'm not sure, uh, you've mentioned an annual salary of about five mil. So you must be paying something like 10 or 15% income tax, right? I'm not sure, actually. I don't, that's I don't right. Know. Always um, seems relevant, but plus the local tax as well. I live in Shibuya, so. Yeah. A, so, I mean, your, your individual tax situation might just make sure, I mean, are you working with an accountant at all? No, my company does also. Well, when you're buying an investment property, it's probably a good idea to get, I mean, post-purchase, post it's probably a good idea to get an accountant on board uh, because he's going to be able to advise you um, what to claim and how to claim to uh, minimize your taxes because now you're going to have two income streams. You're going to have your salary and you're going to have the property income. Uh, uh, so there's a, they can get a bit creative with that and try to minimize your taxes, carry off the uh, expenses, the purchase expenses, management expenses, and so forth. Um, so net pre-tax in those cities, um, if I'd get 7%, I'd be very happy. Usually it's going to be 6, 6.5. And, and cost-wise, um, if you're working directly with an agent, it's probably going to be, at this price level, probably going to be 15% worst case purchase cost and that's comprised yeah that's comprised of the agency fee which is going to be three percent plus sixty thousand plus tax so for these price property for five million property is probably going to be close to four and a half five percent agency fee and then legal and registration would be somewhere between two and a half to seven percent depending on the official evaluation of the property and your purchase tax um, also varies depending on the official eval, but usually not more than two and a half percent. Right, correct. So it's quite a lot. Added yeah. On. So worst case, we like to assume fifteen percent if you're working directly with an agent. If you're working through us, there's another five percent on top of that. Okay, that's five percent. Hopefully, we'll be able to save you from uh, costly mistakes and help you negotiate the price if possible. So um, we and I, I hope our customers like to think that um, we're, we're more than worth it. 
Okay, so five million, there would be an extra, potentially an extra million on top in fees. Worst case scenario, 20%, yeah. Okay, well. Usually it's going to end up being something like 16, 17, but we assume worst case when we're evaluating deals so that it's not going to get, you know, it's only going to get better by settlement. Right, okay. Uh, And then, so you buy the property and then the the rent, the rental yield, how's that sort of calculated? How much... uh, how do they work out what the, the so well, the listings the listings that you see online um, they've got two kinds of yields that they list uh, one that they call coupon yield and one that they call net yield the coupon yield you can disregard completely it's pretty meaningless because they don't factor in anything aside from the property price and the rental income the net yield is closer to net, but it's not really net as well because they don't factor in purchase costs. They don't factor in property management. They only factor in the building fees. Um, so I would say if you're working through us, maybe take off three, 4% of the yield that you see on listings to right. get the real value. But in any case, once we, if you do work with us, once we're starting to evaluate potential properties, we'll, we're not gonna go off the listings. We're gonna put them in an Excel sheet that breaks down the worst case purchase costs, the management costs, insurance, property management, our management, if you need our, our uh, help with managing it as well. And the bottom, the bottom yield that you're gonna see in the Excel sheet is gonna be net pre-tax uh, worst case. At, at the time of purchase, obviously, as the building gets older, building fees might get higher, uh, rent might drop. If we're lucky, Japan's economy might improve and rent might go up, but we haven't seen that happen to any significant degree yet. Um, so obviously, throughout the investment life cycle, the yield might change. But at the time of purchase, what you see on the Excel sheet is going to be the worst case scenario. So on a on a um, so on a five million property, what would be this? So there would be the building would already the apartment would already be tenanted, or you'd buy somewhere untenanted. Um, again, advantages and disadvantages to both. If you're buying tenanted, you're buying straight into income as opposed to into expenses. Um, so it's pretty much turnkey, making income from day one. Um, the upside of a vacant property is that it's going to be recently renovated, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you're saving yourself the uh, at least the first renovation fee uh, that you'd be up for if and when your tenant moves out. And the best of both worlds is if we manage to get a property that's just recently been tenanted, so it's been renovated and it's already has a tenant in place. Okay. So then, and then uh, what would be the so what would be the typical rent on that someone would pay? Say say for example five million in Yokohama, how much would they be paying a month uh, for? Uh, depending on location, they're probably going to be paying something like 40, 45,000 yen. Okay. But that, that's not taking into account building fees and property management and so forth. So if yeah. rather than look at what rent they're paying, it's better to look at what actual yield you're going to get in your pocket. So if we're, assuming, okay. if we're assuming Yokohama on a 5 million property, let's say conservatively, let's say we're expecting, say, four, four and a half percent, let's call it, right, yield. Okay. Um, which means that every month you'll be getting approximately 20,000 yen. That's after all the... Uh... After all of the fees, yeah. Okay. And if we manage to get something that's better, then it might be 25,000 yen or 27,000 yen, but... Um, 
on a four and a half kind of conservative uh, estimate of four and a half percent yield, that's probably going to be about 20,000 yen pocket. Okay. And then, uh, pop, 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 pop. so oh, that includes ongoing fees. So it includes the, the um, reserve fund uh, management fees. Yep. Then property so, management fee is uh, usually 5% plus tax. So 5.5% for the, uh, the, property manager who handles the tenants. They're the ones who collect the rental income and respond to maintenance requests and so forth. And they're the ones who are also going to help you find a tenant when it's vacant. What about insurance? They got a separate fee for that. So insurance is... Insurance is minute for these properties. It's two, three bucks a month from memory, I think. Yeah, I remember. But I pay the fire fee here, I think. It's like 5000 Yeah, the tenant pays the um, the fire insurance and the, they, they, the tenant insures their own uh, body and possessions. And you insure the interior of the unit. So, you know, the walls, the windows, the fixtures and so forth. Right. Um, and most importantly, you insure uh, against third-party damages. So, for example, if your hot boiler goes and you're leaking water into the unit below... Uh, that's going to be fully covered by your insurance. So I just buy one one-off insurance that would cover all that. Yeah, renewable every five years. That would but it like doesn't cover cover. everything. So wear and tear damages to stuff in your apartment is not covered. So again, if we take that hot boiler example, the boiler goes. You still need to pay for a new boiler, right, or for the repair. Um, but you're right. not going to be paying for third-party damages. But if there's an earthquake or a fire or a typhoon damages, um, then your insurance does cover you to a certain degree. So I think for fire, it's maybe close to 100%. For earthquakes, it's around 50%, 60%. And that also goes on the official eval of the property. So sometimes you're going to find that you're going to get a little bit more than 50, a little bit less than 50. It's not always going to be um, exactly as market price. Right. And then you also want to get landlord insurance in case your tenant dies in the property. Um, but that's again, it's not too expensive. I think it's less than 5,000 yen a year or something like that. A landlord. So there'll be two landlord insurance and then sort of death, the uh, earthquake and they fire. call it fire insurance, but it includes, yeah, all damages. Okay. And who would organize? I would organize that myself, or that would be done through. It's totally the... up to you. If you, as part of the settlement, if you take us on, on for full facilitation, we'll put that in place as part of the settlement process. Um, and then ongoing management. So the insurance companies and the property managers that we would be working with um, would usually be normal Japanese companies, not too foreigner savvy. So if you do want to also manage your portfolio on your own after settlement, I'd probably direct you to work uh, with insurance companies that would be able to communicate with you directly. And same goes for property managers. But if you're going to use us for management as well, then we will just put in place what are you know, the best offers that we know. So then, so the fees to you, you said it was, uh, was it 5%, 5%? So it's 5% 5, 5 on the purchase. Yeah. Um, plus tax, so 5.5. And that's, there's a minimum cap, which is exactly your budget. So we don't charge less than 5% of 5 million yen. So the minimum is always going to be 275, including tax. So even if you end up buying a property uh, that's, you know, four and a half million, it's still going to be that five of five, five million. And then 
that that's a fixed amount. So we're not even if you end up looking at you know submitting offers, conducting due diligence on you know twelve properties, we're not going to charge you anything extra for extra work. It covers you until settlement. And then for management, if you do need our help with management, we charge um, basically two percent of the rental income, but we also have a cap minimum cap on that of um, one monthly hour at 2,800 yen plus tax. So three, roughly 3,000 yen per month. 3,000 yen per month. And that, co- that covers all the uh, uh, dealings with property? All standard dealings with the property. If we have to, if there are insurance claims, court, you know, court claims, um, if we have to suddenly, you know, forcibly no, there's not forced uh, forced um, evictions in japan but if we have, if a tenant suddenly disappears and we have to get a court order to enter the unit to see if they're still there those sort of un that sort of unroutine work is charged on an hourly basis <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. okay but for standard just to you know to manage the property manager and you know receive uh, make sure that the rent is being received and make sure the expenses are being paid and so forth that's just one hour per month Okay. Um, so when a property becomes vacant, uh, the property manager would be charging one month of the rental income when they place a new tenant. And we would be charging half a month. Uh, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because usually you pay the key money, which goes to the landlord, doesn't it? Uh, key money, I mean, there's, there's vacant, which is like the thank you fee. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes we, we personally don't think it's a fair fee, and if at all possible, we <laughs> yeah, instruct the property managers not to charge that. Yeah. Um, but depending on the city, depending on the property manager, some of them is just the way they work, so we can't really change the industry. Yeah. Um, and then key money is what you pay to actually change the key and the lock, right? To actually get uh, a, a new key oh, okay. and lock, and that's that's real money that's being paid to the to the maintenance company to do that. Um. The thank you fee, if it is being charged, usually goes to the landlord. Um, there's a contract renewal fee when a, a lease is renewed, which depending on the existing, like if you're inheriting a property with a tenant in place, um, the previous landlord might have not charged them a contract renewal fee, in which case the owner will need to pay that when the contract is renewed. Ah, okay. Um, but it depends on whatever lease they've got in place there. Yeah. Uh, so- Sorry, month's rent isn't it just usually just a month's rent usually a month's rent yeah 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 then uh and then the deposit so how does that so there's a tenant in there do i inherit the, the deposit yes so if you're getting a tenanted property it depends on what sort of securities they have some of them will have a shikikina security deposit in which case that'll be deducted from the purchase price so you basically inherit it um but in some cases, and for example, when we place a new tenant, we'd actually rather get a guarantee company instead of a security deposit because they'll cover up to three months of rent, whereas the security deposit is usually one month. And they'll also cover cases like, for example, in the case that I've mentioned where we have to, you know, a tenant disappears and we have to wait until we get a court order to take possession of the unit again. Um, in that case, the guarantee company will cover the rent until we get the court order, which sometimes can take a year. Right. So we would much rather have a guarantee company if possible. But when you inherit a tenant, then you inherit whatever they've got. If they've got a security deposit, you got to live with that. 
And then usually they have a guarantor, don't they? So they do... Um... Yeah, I wouldn't count on those for anything, though. <laughs> right. no, they're, they're just people. Sometimes they got a guarantor who's their dad, and dad has already passed away since they signed the lease, or it might be a brother who's just not going to... He's going to say he doesn't want anything and apply to court to not have to pay. So I will, personal guarantors are the worst possible security. I wouldn't okay. count on them for anything. Sometimes you it's you get something off them, but not always. I mean, they, they look, they're more reliable than they are in other countries because there is this um, saving face thing. Like, you know, if my brother is stuffed up, then I don't want to be, you know, the one to, to tarnish my uh, reputation by not paying his debt. But they're still the weakest form of security. Right. So you, you said to me, you get a guarantor, because usually, because I got my uh, company to be the guarantor, but I know, you know, there was like, okay, well, the other option is a guarantor company. That uh, a corporate, if the personal guarantor is an employer, um, that's much better. That That's something that you can actually depend on. But a guarantee right. company, what I mean by a guarantee company, it's kind of like rent insurance. It's something that the tenant signs up for. And they, then they're an added layer between the property manager and the tenant. So they, the tenant pays them and they pay the property manager every month. And if the tenant for any reason is late or missing on some payments, they will still be paying you every month. And then they'll work to, to, they'll work to retrieve that uh, debt from the tenant directly. So you don't need to be involved in that. And if they run into issues for three months, they haven't received payment, then they'll let you know that, look, this tenant seems to not be paying. So we're going to terminate the lease on the tenant's behalf. So you, you would you would negotiate that to be added in or that's already... For new tenants, if we're placing new tenants, we'll insist on that. All right. Because the other advantage of that is that the uh, guarantee companies or the rent insurance companies, whatever you want to call them, they also do... a. Uh, they don't approve tenants for this sort of service if they don't think the tenant will be paid. So it's sort of a credit check, um, which is the only way for us to get credit checks in Japan. There's not really an official credit check system like there is in other countries. Um, so we would insist that new tenants have this in place. And if they're not approved for that, that's a red flag. We don't want to take that tenant. Unless, I mean, look, sometimes you'll get like a foreign student who just, you know, they don't qualify. They don't have anyone. They don't have an income history in Japan. They don't know anyone. And then we might, you know, I mean, we'll consult with you. It's always, you're the one making the final choice, but we might advise that this looks like it might be a safer to just take a security deposit. It's not a bad tenant. They just can't get it for various reasons, right? But if you inherit a tenant, then you inherit them with whatever they've got in place. They might have just paid a security deposit. In that case, we can sometimes ask them to sign up for rent insurance or for a guarantee company. But in that case, you'll have to pay the sign-up fee, which again is equal to approximately one month of rent. Like we can't force a tenant to pay for that just because we took over a property, right? Right, okay. So I suppose you just... Uh, so you, Very you much would, case by case with that. Yeah, yeah. So you'd, you'd, I'd say, okay, I've got this budget and then you'd go away, search, you'd bring... You'd do all the, would you do all the kind of uh, due diligence in the sense of looking at all that and then yep. you'd arrange to me and yep. I would discuss together. That's what we do basically. So we research, we provide potentials, we tell you what we like more or less about each of the potentials and then you help fine tune us or give us more focus. Like for example, you point out that you don't like this or this or that and then the next research round will fine tune it according to what you've mentioned. And then when we finally um, have, you know, one or two potentials that we'd like to pursue, we start contacting listing agents 
and then submitting offers, asking for due diligence. Part of the due diligence is not going to be available until we submit an offer. For example, the building's uh, renovation history and reserve funds, often they'll have the, the selling agent will have to pay a fee to the building management company to get those reports. And they're not going to do that before they get an offer on the table. Um, but the offers are non-committing. So we always note on all the offers that they're pending due diligence. So if we find out that something is just less than savory, um, we'd still be within our polite manners to say that, look, we have to pull the offer back or reduce the price because we found out that this and this and that. But if we just do that because you got cold feet or you ended up going for a different property and we don't really give them a good reason for why we're pulling back, then that agent will not work with us again. So we would ask, if you work with us, we would ask that we pursue the properties just one at a time, like investigate them one at a time, confirm whether we're going for this one or not before moving on to the next one. Okay. Yeah, I think it's fair. Um, okay, yeah, so you talked a little bit about this sort of, so I buy a place, um, obviously um, I receive the, 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 um, the yield and, and then so I think you talked about this before. So uh, how much would I put aside for um, sort of dealing with ongoing sort of costs and that potential, you know, like say if the, if the tenant moves out and I have to um, re renovate or boiler goes or other sort of, what's the sort of standard? Um, statistically, I would probably, and look, it's, it's an average, right? Like you could have five years of nothing happening and then suddenly be hit with a big one, or you could have a tenant move out three months after purchase. So any number I'm going to give you now is just statistical averages. And obviously with a single property held over a short period of time, they tend to be a lot more skewed. Like if you had a portfolio of 20, 30 units over 10 years, I'd say the average is about 10% of the gross rental income to put aside, right. uh, of, the, of the net income, sorry, to put aside. Um, but again, that's that's just a statistical average. So you do want to have some cash reserves uh, from the get-go, I would say. Yeah. That's yeah. same. Suddenly buy one, and then you, I mean, the average renovation, because I, isn't it about a million or something, the average renovation, or is that more larger? No, bathroom, bathroom, if you have to replace an entire bathroom, that's somewhere between 800,000 to 1.2 million. Right. Um, if you have to replace an entire kitchen, that's maybe another half million or so. Uh, again, we're talking about studio one bedroom units, yeah. Um, yeah. But the average for renovations, like let's say a tenant moves out, the average for a renovation, I would usually is going to be somewhere between sixty to eighty thousand yen per year of tenancy. Uh, oh, okay, so that would so so what what kind of so that five million? What would it be? Just a. One was it one LDK or just the one room and a, and a kitchen kind of thing? Is that what it be? Yeah, one R or one K or if we're lucky, one DK maybe. Okay, so just a kitchen, a toilet kitchen plus dining maybe would be the biggest and the, and an actual room. Yeah, right. Okay. Usually it's going to be a studio or um, studio with a separate kitchen. Okay, right. Yeah, I can. And then, so the long term, so you buy a place, so what's, and if you, if you stick to sort of 1990 or something, what's the sort of, the, 
the long-term value of the assets. You, you, you predict that it sort of depreciates over, uh, over time, the value? And it depends the on location. The only thing that can retain or gain in value in Japan is location. It's not going to be the structure itself. The structure pretty much right. depreciates. Um, I mean, loses value as the years go by, but the, the location might become attractive. So Fukuoka City, for example, if you bought Central in Fukuoka City 10 years ago, um, regardless of how much the building depreciates, you might be uh, double figures right at the moment. Um, same obviously goes for Central Tokyo, Central Osaka. Other locations, it really depends on what happens in the location. So areas can become a bit more popular, a bit less popular. There might be new construction in the area, which pushes down prices for existing older buildings. Um, just market fundamentals, it's, it's hard to, to say in advance. I would say that investment properties are usually priced by the rental income that they can generate. So, for example, if you're looking at those um, one-bedroom units, it's very unlikely that they're going to be purchased by an owner-occupier. They wouldn't want to live in there, right? And the people who do live in them would never be able to afford to buy them. So you're most likely buying something that is classified strictly as an investment property, and those are priced by the rental income that they can generate. So as long as building fees didn't go up too much and as long as the rent hasn't dropped too much, you'll probably be going to sell at the same price or higher if the area is successful. Um, but if rent has dropped significantly, building fees have increased significantly, that means the yield has also shrunk, in which case the price will be reduced as well. How do you, how do you manage that? So what's the... the uh... I can give you a ballpark figure from our experience with clients who have sold properties. Most of them are buy and hold, so we don't really do that much. We had a bit of a wave of sales when that new legislation uh, notification came in. So most of them have sold at either the same price or maybe f up to 15% less. Some of them in more central popular areas have sold at up to 15, 20% more. But I'd say on average, usually people sell at around the same price that they've purchased. Um, so, but, but I mean, even if you're selling at 10, 15, even 20% less, but you've had, you know, six, seven years of 5% or 6% or 7% rental income, um, then you're already well in the green. So that's not really a huge concern usually. Okay. And then, so if you buy and hold, uh, the sort of outcome is the building's going to, fall down or what's the i mean you obviously can't hold forever we what's are the... always we haven't had too many cases where that's happened we always either <laughs> either i mean look one of two things will happen either the yield will start shrinking because building fees will start going up at which point you'll probably want to sell so that you can put your money in something a bit more attractive um or you know, properties that have been yielding high returns and have been getting very old for a long period of time, but the owners didn't really have an incentive to sell because the property was still yielding good returns. In those cases, we had developers just come in and start making offers, pushing towards a sale. And at some point or another, they get the 80% that they need. And, the, you know, it's just, we don't have much of a choice we sell. Uh, we haven't had buildings that have been declared unsafe or due for demol demolishment or anything of that sort yet. Uh, but we try not to hold, on behalf of our customers, we recommend that they sell when the building is approaching 40 years old. Um, so that's probably going to be the case um, in the future as well. I don't think we'll see anything being torn down under us. Okay, so there is a sort of end point that sort of, you know, you can get out either by selling 
roughly the price you got. Yeah, or... sometimes less, sometimes less, depending on what yeah. happens with building fees and rental income. Yeah. Um, but hopefully after enough time and enough rental income has accrued, so you're still going to be profitable. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so it can be sold. Yeah. And then, so money in and out of, like my money's in the UK. So I've kind of tried to research what's the easiest, most cost-effective way to get money into Japan. Uh, we work with OFX which are uh, similar to WISE, which were formerly known as TransferWISE, if you know them. Um, yeah. It's always better to use a foreign exchange provider and not use direct bank transfers because the bank will kill you with the rates. Mm. Um, if you're talking about, you've mentioned that you're transferring over about 300,000, right? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, depending on the but potentially... Um, around that much, so yeah. well. Just just to take that as a, as a just to take that as a as a calculation. If you're transferring three hundred thousand dollars at bank rates, that means that you're losing at least um, two yen per dollar, right? Um, compared to a foreign exchange provider, so that's that's a loss of about six thousand bucks there, right? So right. you definitely don't want to use the banks. You want to sign up with a foreign exchange provider. We have been working with, and we recommend OFX. They're very, um, the rates are similar between all the foreign exchange provider. There might be a yen higher or a yen lower, depending on the day. But with OFX, we just feel that we have somebody to speak to. So if, for example, if we booked a deal uh, by mistake, we can contact them and say, look, that was a mistake. Please cancel the deal. And we have an account manager there. We have a person to speak to, and they're always very willing to help. Whereas with the other, TransferWise is the biggest one, or WISE they're called now. Um, but they're fairly automatic. There's no one to speak to. If you cancel a deal, you pay the fee for booking the deal. There's not, no, nobody to speak to to change anything or to, to receive a response from if anything's gone wrong. Um, so we would recommend OFX. Um, we've also got a partnership with them because we're a corporate account. So we can give you a link to sign up that'll... Um, further improve your rates if you work with them. Well, otherwise, the rates are the other biggest one. I think Compass is one of the other big ones. I haven't worked with them specifically, so I can't really um, provide an opinion on them. What would be the rates for OFX? Um, they're always going to be at least two. The, uh, obviously, the rate depends on whatever the, the exchange rate is at the moment. So right. the best way to make sure you're not losing money is to monitor the exchange rate. And when you see there's a peak, uh, are you transferring uh, from pounds or from dollars? From pounds. It's, well, it peaked at 56, 156. Now it's gone down to 150, I think, because of the COVID outbreak. So well, pushed it have a look at what the last, uh, say, year has done with the exchange rates. That will yeah. give you an idea of when is a profitable peak. And when it reaches that point is when you want to transfer. Right. And then OFX uh, will always, uh, Wise or whoever you use, OFX will always be at least two or three yen better than the rates the bank will give you. Right. So if you look at the, um, the median rate, like if you just Google, uh, you know, one British pound in Japanese yen, you get the Google median rate. Uh, so foreign exchange providers will be somewhere between half a yen to one yen off that rate, whereas banks will be two or three yen off that rate. Okay, right. Kind of like when you exchange money at the airport when you're going to a foreign country, right? Uh, what about, um, is there like any sort of digital online um, 
was trying to look at other, I know there's a lot of these like Revolut and places like that that sort of do currency exchanges. No, the, the, those are all online. Everything I've mentioned so far is all done online. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. So they're, uh, okay, so I'll look at that. And I'll then- I'll you a link to, uh, to OFX, the registration link. So if you do sign up with them, make sure you use that link and that'll give you access to our corporate account manager and also better rates. Okay. Uh, are we, you okay for time? This is, I know we're going on quite a long time. I've probably got another 15 minutes or so. After that, I will have to go on to another one. Yeah, got it. Um, okay, certainly last, last, last couple of questions. I'm just sort of, so sort of broader market. So, so the, the, the sort of COVID outbreak and obviously the global sort of um, financial, you know, asset sort of boom. Yeah. How's that affecting um, Japan real estate and is it sort of sustainable? It hasn't affected us significantly. Um, we've seen prices slightly softer in Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya. Um, but that's sort of stopped now as well. Now that the vaccination rates are up and people are feeling more confident to be walking around again and moving house again and doing business again. Um, Japan's economy is more dependent on um, stuff like population decline and the, uh, the debt to the GDP ratio. They've got a lot of uh, domestic debt, but it is domestic. Like They don't owe money uh, to foreign creditors and so forth. Um, but look, as long as the population is shrinking, the workforce is not going to be growing. So that sort of puts a damper on potential growth, I would say. Um, we wouldn't assume any, like if capital growth does happen in Japan, it's great. It's a bonus, like icing on the cake. I wouldn't assume it's going to happen in any case. Yeah, yeah. But what about foreign investors sort of coming into the market? Always so, coming in, that very popular foreign investment destination, always has been. It's considered a safe haven okay. uh, because of right. the yen, because of the, the, um, the governance policies here. Japan is considered a very safe place, even if the yield is not very high here. So when crisis hits, investors actually tend to flock towards Japan. Right. Yeah, I was, I was thinking how that might. Um, and then, yeah, I think that was it. Sort of. Okay. So long term. Yeah. The. Yeah, I, I don't think. Um, I was trying to sort of pan sort of pre after and then a more broader sort of long term uh, kind of perspective on on the market. It was just more about COVID investors coming in yeah, to like summarize that. what we've discussed about what how we can help um i'm not sure i'll send you an explanation of services document if i haven't sent it to you yet yeah just scrolling down for our emails yet i i don't think i have sent that to you so i'll send you a um i'll send you a explanation of services document just to explain what we can do how much we charge and how long everything takes And then uh, good. If, good. if and when you Sorry. want to uh, start research, just let me know and we'll kick off the engagement process. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at an apartment today, hopefully at 12 today. So I'm going to go off soon and look at that. And that's the sort of 24. So I've just got to try and see what the issues with that. And then I'll sort of keep looking and sort of keep considering sort of what, where the sort of price points are of apartments here and then what money that leaves, leaves over yep. that I and, or even I might even sort of continue renting uh, for the foreseeable future. And then, you know, if the, um, you know, in two years, if I'm getting um, 
permanent residency, then that gives me access to a lot more finance, which I can. I that's can, that's not a bad idea. I would think. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how, you know, if, if the rent that you're paying now is a disaster or not, but if you've already been renting for eight years, it might be a good idea to just rent for two more years so you can get the financing. That's what, because everything I look at, it's like, you know, it's, it's, if I just get a little bit more, you know, 10, 20 million more, then, you know, just pushes me much into a much newer, better location, yeah. just a much better assets to have, but it's just obviously, I can't get financing. I'm I'm competing with all the Japanese who can just get you know 100 financing like that. You know they can yeah, easily. I think. Look, if I was in your shoes, I'd probably wait the two years and just get something better and also less cash out of pocket, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's an option. I mean, again, I'm still trying to juggle and see what the what I can uh, what what the market's like and things like that. And, and I'm seeing it as a learning process. You know, talking to you trying to understand sort of real estate and obviously, you know, the asset as a, well, one as a home, obviously for myself and my family and then another for sort of as an asset for sort of future, future yeah. wealth. So it's, it's, a, it's a learning process and I'm, I'm happy to wait and, and, you know, uh, take, take my time on things. So I appreciate the time that you've given us to just talk about things and share, share your insights. Anytime. So, Always happy to. So I'll send you the explanation of services document. And then if you're looking at pot potential properties, whether it's for your own home or for investment, don't be shy to just uh, send me an email and ask me my opinion about them. We don't charge for that. Okay, brilliant. And uh, thanks for all the work you've done sort of on the podcast and the, and the YouTube videos. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, glad you're enjoying that. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. So I, I learn a lot. So thanks. And Thank hopefully you you're doing it. Awesome. Good meeting you. Okay, cheers, Dave. Thanks, Thanks very much. Bye. So there you have it. As promised at the start, serious deep dive into buying, managing, and selling investment properties here in Japan with a focus on condo units, uh, which are one of the most, if not the most popular asset class here in the land of the rising sun. Hope you found some value in it. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.